My theory has always been um, uh, that technology doesn't actually replace anything. It's an addition to what we've got already. Um, I must admit, I feel rather out of place at a university because I'm not an academic. I'm not a university person at all. I'm a theatre designer, not a director, a designer. I design scenery and costumes. And I've been doing that for over 60 years. Um, and it was in 2000 that the University of Alberta asked me to come here and teach for a couple of years in the drama department. And I just didn't go and stayed here and sold up in England eventually and moved here permanently. Consequently, I've totally lost my English accent and everybody thinks I'm Canadian. <laughs> um, so, feeling a little out of place in a university setting, I'd much rather be in a theatre workshop or a theatre wardrobe when I'm really at home. Um, I've worked a lot in Europe and America and in Canada long before I came here. I first came to Canada in 1963 to build um, Manitoba Theatre Centre in Winnipeg. But my first contact with Tolkien was rather odd. In 1963, I found myself living in Amsterdam, Holland, uh, where I was head of design for a Dutch company. And because I, was, I got a sort of permanent position there, I thought it would be nice to learn Dutch. This is difficult, not because it's a difficult language, but because every Dutch person speaks English perfectly, <laughs> and so it's always easier. But eventually the day came when I said, I'm not going to speak English anymore. I'm going to speak Dutch from now on. I was doing a couple of courses at the time, and of course, meetings were in Dutch, and so um, I, I, I learned Dutch very quickly. Eventually I got to the stage where I thought, I can read a simple book now, I know, I'll go and buy a, a children's book. And I went into the children's book, uh, bookshop, and there, and of course it's not really a children's book at all, there was a book called In the Bant van der Ring, which was the Dutch version of The Hobbit. So I actually read The Hobbit first of all in Dutch. I say it wasn't a lot of help with my Dutch, because in ordinary conversation you don't need to talk an awful lot about dragons and elves and goblins. And it was much later, in the early 1990s, that I found myself as head of design for a company in England, a beautiful theatre in a place called Farnham, just south of London, so I could live at home in London and commute, really. And I also had a small flat down at Farnham. It was a beautiful theatre. I loved it there. And like most English theatres, um, they, they make enough money to keep going for the rest of the year by doing a huge Christmas show. Normally, it's English pantomime, which is a different kettle of fish altogether. My first year there, they decided they weren't going to do a pantomime, they were going to do a production of a children's story called The Worst Witch. The Worst Witch you've probably never heard of, but it was extremely popular. There was a whole series of Worst Witch books written by they, Jill. They just, they just made a, an adaptation that went up on Netflix. So. Well, you see, the, the thing is, um, the, the Worst Witch, what does it remind you of? It's set in an academy for witches um, where Matilda is the worst witch, where everything goes wrong for her, but of course she turns out right in the end and everything. 
And uh, this was before Harry Potter, who then kind of took over the market for that sort of thing. But it was a great success. And the following year, um, the director, Graham, said to Colin, we're going to do The Hobbit this Christmas. He'd got the, the stage version of it written. It had never been done on stage before. This was uh, 1992. Um, now, for these big shows, and it was a big show, um, I start designing it way back. I started in May, I think. Because we do have kind of, the workshops have a kind of layoff in August. And my idea was instead of laying off all the carpenters, the workshop staff, we keep them on and build the big Christmas show then. And so that when we get to rehearsals, we've got an awful lot of it built and an awful lot of, lot of it can be rehearsed in the actual set itself, which was great. So it was very, very early on that I started having my first um, talks about the show with the director, Graham. First talks tend to be a bit meandering. And I get through an awful lot of scrap paper. I tend not to carry smart sketchbooks around with me. Most of my sketch first sketches are on the backs of napkins or beer mats or, uh, or, or in, in those days, cigarette packets. You know. And here, I've got a bunch of, oh no, I'm doing it the other way, aren't I? Um, this is, these are some of my very, very first sketches. They weren't all done on one page like that. They're, they're, they're sketches on several pages. Um, and um, here, you can see a sketch plan. And here, because I like to think in three dimensions right from the start. My initial idea was that it's a journey. It's a journey. And it's going on a journey. And it was this movement of going on a journey up a hill that started me thinking of this. So here is, is a, a sort of curvy, wavy path in plan, if you can see it. And this is what I was imagining. Now, this particular stage, it was great to work on because um, the, the auditorium was in, rather like the Thames here, it was on one big sort of curve with no balconies or anything. But different from the Thames, there was no proscenium arch. This meant that if you want, didn't want a proscenium arch, you could play it without a proscenium arch on a completely open stage. Or you could design your own proscenium arch for it. In this case, of course, I knew that right from the start I needed a lot of off-stage space to store things, you know, all the different scenes. So I thought it would be rather nice to have this big curved proscenium arch. And I put some Celtic around it, and it was very decorative. So everything took place through that. But my path came out through it into the auditorium. And in fact, we built it so that it kind of tumbled over the front edge of the stage. So that uh, you, if, if you could, could, if you wanted to, literally, from the auditorium, walk straight up Bilbo's path from, from your seat. In fact, we had to have um, Stewart's station there during the intermission because kids were very, very keen to take part in the adventure. So, um, having done those sketches, oh, you'll see something which actually became quite important here. Uh, you probably can't see it from where you are, but scribbled there is a little note from me to myself, and it says, How tall is a hobbit? How tall is our hobbit, in other words? Um, so, I then started making um, a sketch model 
just cutting up bits of colours and everything. And you can see here, just marked out in pencil, is my big proscenium arch. I put a couple of other arches behind it, which are disguised as sort of mountainy things. And this is my um, my pathway, which is cascading over the front into the auditorium. And it was at this stage I was working on that in my office at the theatre when there was a knock on my door, and I turned around, and there was the director, Graham. And he said, oh, Colin, I'm glad you're in. Um, I want you to meet uh, John Key, who'll be playing Bilbo. So I turned around, nice to, oh, <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, he was very short. Uh, he, he's, he's still alive and working. He's three foot 11. Uh, so that is very fun. And I, and I was working on a, on a high stool at my drawing board. I've got this, and I said, come and have a look at what I'm doing. And his, his nose was just about level with the top of the drawing book. So I said, oh, look, sit on my high stool. But he couldn't get on the high stool. So then I said, look, I'm not sure about political correctness here, but is it okay if I help? And he said, go ahead. So I just picked him up and put him on the stool. It was then that I suddenly realized perhaps we have a problem, a technical problem. And it's quite simply this. This path goes right up to a high platform at the back. At the back, it, it's, it was over two meters. It was about eight feet. feet. Uh, do you think in meters or feet? Meters. Meters. It, it, it was about eight meters thirty or something like that high at the back. That meant, if you, you imagine you're an actor, you go on to Mirkwood, you walk up stage, up stage, up, 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 and then you've got to get back down to stage level without out of view of the audience. So that means you've got to have a whole lot of steps off stage. And I said to John Key, um, what's the highest step you can manage? And he said, oh, I can't really manage anything higher than 15 centimeters or six inches. And I then realized that in order to get up to eight, or, or, or two meters, 25 or whatever. That means an awful lot of steps off stage. And all my off stage area was being used up. Do you know what I mean? Uh, where I wanted to have large pieces of scenery set. And in fact, the problem was exacerbated because every time Bilbo Baggins says, come on, on to Mirkwood or on to Eldon or whatever, um, he's followed by 13 dwarves. And so he's got to go first. So what you've got, the technical rehearsal, on to Mirkwood, he goes off, and then you've got 13 dwarves marking time while he gets down the steps to get off. It was a serious problem. But John had the answer. He said, uh, excuse me, I think I've got a solution here. And they said, oh yes, what, what, what's going to happen? And he said, well, you, one of the stage crew here is a very big guy, he's called Fred. Why doesn't he just grab me as soon as I'm out of sight and tuck me under his arm and take me to my next entrance? <laughs> that was what we had. Fred was dedicated to it, and he'd grab him, literally tuck him under his arm and take him to the next entrance. But in order to work all this out, I thought the heights of people are very important. So I cut out little figures um, here. So here is the average person. I've called him Bard, the guy who kills Smiles in the end. Um, and here's Bilbo. Um, I see one meter ten, because we were working metrically, of course. Um, Gandalf was a very tall guy, and we put him in with lifts in his boots, so that he was a little taller. And of course, he had a tall. So he actually came out at two meters tall. And trolls, which I'll talk about later, were very, very tall indeed. So 
So then I, I cut those out of little bits of card and stuck them on models. So now you can see, here's Bill Bodog. I can program off of that. I think I can draw with that. And here's, here's Bard. Um, the model is still in a very rough stage. By the way, you will see the big empty space at the back. At this stage, I hadn't decided what on earth I was going to do with that. Um, and what in fact, oh, first of all, here's the completed stage plan. Now, these technical drawings, although they're the most boring thing to look at, generally speaking, are the most important things for designers and stage technicians, because these are what people build from. I bought a complete set of them over there if you want to look at them afterwards. But this is my basic stage plan. So here's the front row of seats, look. And here's, and here's the, the steps coming over the edge of the stage. Here's my big arch. And here's the, the path going up and off at that side. This center section here of, of the slope um, was actually a truck, a platform on wheels so that that could be run off to one side and another one brought on from the other side. So the way we did the scene changes, for, for example, was the exterior of Bilbo's house in Hobbiton would be set on the truck. At the end of that scene would be a blackout. The truck would go off, the other truck would come on, which had got the inside of his house on it, could also carry any furniture we needed with it as well, and lights up. So the, the, the scene changes happened very, very quickly and very instantaneously. Right from the start, we thought, we do not want to have plates for scene changes. They've got to happen flick, flick, flick like that, because there's an awful lot of them. Um, there were other tricks as well, of course. At the back, I decided on a set of back cloths. This was one of them. They weren't just ordinary back cloths. Um, they were painted not on the usual heavy scenic canvas, but on cotton sheeting. Scenic supplies can supply cotton sheeting just like if you put thin sheet, cotton sheets on your bed, but 30 foot wide so there's no seam. And um, in this case, this was painted in dyes. Apart from this foreground dark shape, which is painted in solid black paint. So if we gently light it from the back, this goes into silhouette and we get a nice glow from the distance. Uh, distance. But, so it doesn't actually look like a painted backcloth. Also, we can use colored lights in the back so we could do a sunset on that. And you know, the, the, the rocks in the front will go into silhouette against the sunset. It's a neat trick. And we did several plots like that. This was the one for Hobbiton, um, which was uh, mainly done in dyes. The trees, I think, were painted solid so that we could backlight it for, for twilight effects and that sort of thing. And this was uh, in, in the Misty Mountains, um, which was a lot of the second half So, when we put the basic set on stage, it looks like that. Now, this is now complete. You can see my arch with its, uh, the, the Celtic pattern was actually built on. It was three-dimensional. Um, and you can see one of my back, back cloths in place there and the path leading up. But when the audience were coming in, they didn't actually see that. Uh, what they saw was um, this. No, I'm sorry, that's just another view from the side of the same set. Um, this is the opening of the show, where we had the map 
a Vermeer, of course. This was painted on scrim. A scrim is very useful stuff on stage because if you put light on it from the front and have no light behind it, it looks opaque. And if you then change the light to the light behind it and no light at the front, it will go completely transparent. This was just some roughly on two ropes so it didn't hang flat. But Bilbo had a little prologue speech which he did in front of that, you know, in the ground and a hole in the ground and the, the hobbit and everything. And then we faded through faded through the screen to the first scene, which was his house. And there's his house in Hobbiton. And you can see that it's actually set on a sliding truck here. Circular doors are difficult. You think, oh, it's your to just draw a circle and that's your door. But where do you put the hinges? <laughs> I had to cheat and put a straight edge down the back so you could get decent hinges on. Um, and there's a little sundial here and, and various tricks built into it. Um, here's the inside of Bilbo's house. So that truck slid off and another one took off. And because we're doing it on trucks like that, we can do things like having a little rug and that sort of thing. And this is where all the dwarves arrive and tumble in and they set off on the adventure. Um, for, um, I, I haven't got every single scene here, but I can show you Elrond's house. This was another truck which slid on towards the back of just the entrance to Elrond's house. And we had some um, star, a star clock at the back and the moon because they read the runes on the map by moonlight, don't they? Uh, and we did that by having a, a map made of a, a, a solid, heavy canvas, but um, the, the props department then cut out the runes which were to be seen by moonlight, cut out those shapes, and then we covered it all with some very, very thin cotton, so that when you held it up, you couldn't see the runes. But when they held it up so the moonlight was shining through it, and we had the light testing just that thing, then the moons lit up because they were thinner than, than the rest of the map. I've got a little picture of them reading it somewhere. Here's the trolls, and they were, they were roasting a pig. Um, I'll come back to the trolls in a moment. This is Mirkwood. For Mirkwood, we had two big trees. They were actually painted on canvas. And they were on like curtain tracks, so that they just came on from either side. And on the floor, you see pattern of branches. That's something which our lighting designers are very, very fond of. It's called a gobo. What a gobo is a little bit of metal with holes cut in it of different shapes, and you put it in front of your light so that it then does shadows of leaves or branches or a window frame or whatever you want from there. And so that helps. Lighting does help. And here is, oh, this is the elves' cellar. This is the one where they all escape by getting into barrels and rolling down the chute and down the barrel chute. We were very worried by this scene. Um, what would happen? We wanted one dwarf, it was the tubby one, is it called Bomber? Bomber, that's right to get into a barrel. And, and then you can see just here, there's a chute which goes down. <laughs> and we had a little sort of water effect down there. And um, the idea was that in the middle of this truck, we had a little circular trap door. So you put a barrel there. 
he clambered into it, down through the trap door, and then you could roll the paddle down. We had a serious problem with the technical rehearsal because he couldn't get into the battle quick enough. <laughs> and we were waiting for him to get, because he was rather tubby, waiting for him to get into, out of the battle so we could roll it down. And, and it was just taking forever. But he, the actor came up with a solution and said, why don't I just get into the barrel and then you roll me down the chute? <laughs> <laughs> fine. And every night he didn't finish up with a few bruises, but we just rolled him down the chute. It was great. <laughs> you don't think of the obvious solution sometimes. This is Bjorn's um, house. Um, Bjorn, you may remember, is a, um, a, is he called a skin changer? Yeah. He, he changes shape quite often. And in fact, we, we saw one change in this when he goes out and he changes into a bear and tackles a, root, a, a, a wolf. Now, the, the trick there was the doors at the back were open all the time. Behind this door, there was no wall. So we could have a guy dressed up as a bear behind it. So that as soon as Bjorn went through there and turned to walk up the slope, he went into the, the space behind the door and the, and, and the guy in the bear came out. It worked really neatly. And just at the top here, in, in, in the shadows, we saw the little fight with the, with the wolf when, when he came back again. And there was a nice dinner set up there with candles and all that stuff. Um, the Misty Mountains, which were the main part of the second half of the show, we brought in a separate truck to each side, quite elaborate one, two-level truck, so that if you could see, you could actually come through here from off stage, and there's a platform here which overhung a little bit, or you could go back down there, down some steps at the back, and come out down here. That's what Bilbo does to find uh, the dragon, Smaug. I always thought he was called Smaug, but we got in touch with the Tolkien Society, and they said quite, quite definitely Smaug. The Tolkien Society, by the way, were quite fussy. We got, in, we, uh, um, we got in touch with them at a very early stage. And um, because I, I keep, well, every show I do, I, I, I have a folder, you know, it's very old and matted, but I still have my Hobbit folder, and everything sort of goes into that. And I see, I have the, um, the leaflet from the Tolkien Society. Now, this, of course, is a long time ago, but what is nice, look, Honorary Vice President, Priscilla Tolkien. And um, if you wanted to join, you can still join, because presumably, I think that probably they, um, the prices have changed since now. I see that membership rates for USA and Canada are £19.50. Um, there was also entrance through the rocks here. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how we did Smaug. Uh, in a moment, because I want to move on to some costumes. I've brought a whole bunch of costume designs there, which if you want to, when, when I've finished talking, you can ha have a look at. But I've actually got them all here. Oh no, that's another view of the Misty Mountains from, from the side. Um, just uh, for the trucks, did you just have like two trucks that you just changed stuff on, or did you have like one? The, the one in the middle. Had, had we changed stuff on it. The other trucks were specially built because they were strange shapes and also they had to be fit, built so they would fit into the curve of the center platform, see what I mean? 
So there were three basic other trucks. There was one for Elrond's house, two for Misty Mountains. I think that was it. Um, the center one of those um, sliding trucks could split into two, so that for the Gand not Gandalf scene, Gollum scene, um, there was like a, a chasm in the middle, and he came on a little boat, you'll see it in a moment, and, um, and was on one side of the chasm, and Bilbo was on the, on the other. This is Gandalf. As I say, a very tall actor. He had built-up boots, and the electric department did wonders with his staff so that he could shoot lighting and, lighting and, and, and sparks and, or, or light up as we wished. Um, very expensive jewelry. <laughs> Here's Bilbo. Um, he was a very nice guy. He was extremely cooperative. One of the problems with and maybe what might be called it, because I don't know what you're supposed to call it, with dwarves, uh, is that the bodily proportions are usually wrong, you know. And uh, John's legs are very, very short. So I had to carefully design the costume to kind of even it out as, as much as possible. So the waist on his costume was way above his natural waist. Um, the feet, um, we got our wig maker to to do some hair on some, um, it's called hair net. It's a very, very fine net, mesh, which they do the front of theater and film with, with. And then the wardrobe department applied that to a pair of flesh-colored tights, children's tights, his size. And then we took those down to our shoemaker, who put a pair of soles sort of <laughs> underneath the, the, the tights and everything so that he could run around. Because, of course, we were very on that slope. We had to make sure that they all had non-slip shoes because it was quite a steep slope. Um, and, uh, of course, later on, he, he gets a suit of armor. We made a bit of a mistake here because we found a guy who could do real chainmail. Like, um, this is how I met um, Tristan, of course, because he was doing chainmail. And I, I, I saw some of it and, and, and got to know him. It was a bit of a mistake, because of course real shape like that weighs a ton. And the poor guy was sort of struggling with it, because you know, we were doing two shows a day for, for six weeks. And he did get some days off, I think. Here's the dwarves. These were played, um, the main dwarves, like Thorin and, and, and Bomber and so on, were played by shortish actors. We did have some children also um, playing some of the lesser dwarves. Because when I was doing this sheet of costume designs, I thought, wait a moment, I was, I was coloring it, and I thought, I'm sure it mentions that Thorin has yellow stockings. <laughs> and I couldn't find it, so it, it, then I dawned on me that at some point in the book, an awful lot of description of what the dwarves are wearing is in the text. And I knew that we were going to get Oh, sorry, I was going to say Tolkien nutters, but you're the Tolkien Coming to see it, and I thought, oh dear, this is going to be really difficult. I've got to get everything right. So I had to read the whole book again, making notes, like somebody has his belt, his beard tucked into his belt. Somebody has a plaited beard here. And of course, there's twins. Um, and uh, a lot of, lot of the descriptions of what they're wearing 
is, is actually just mentioned casually in the book, and that it took a long time to do that. These are goblins. Now, these are all played by children in masks, but we did really rather fancy masks. Um, These are my very first sketches for masks. I think, with a bit of luck, ah yes. Um, so if this is the actor's face, the first thing we did was fit him, him or her into a, um, what do you call it, those latex caps you wear when you're swimming, a swim, swim cap. Right. Seems unlikely. So here's his ears. The swim cap did something like that because our props department, we had a specialist person doing the masks, made a bottom jaw. And that was fastened to the swim cap. That meant when the actor moved his mouth, the, the bottom jaw went with it. See what I mean? And then there was a top mask which had a big nose. And it had very big eye holes because you've got to be able to see, you know. So, and that meant that they made up their face behind them black. Um, and uh, then lots of, of scrappy hair covering up all the bits we didn't want people to see. And that worked quite well. It disguised them quite quite admirably, actually. And the goblins um, had special masks because they appeared at, at a whole to a whole back of the set. Um, um, a bit, bit of the, the, the rock slid away. And they, when they first came on, they all had little red LEDs in the, in the eye holes, so you saw all these little red, red eyes kind of folks. Um, so, here we are. So, these are my sketches for some of the months. I see there's the great goblin here, and there's a bit of Gollum here. They didn't, I didn't do any like that. Um, this is a great goblin. I was very disappointed in this because I would, my first sketches showed him as totally, totally gross, you know, the big belly and everything like that. But the choreographer and the, um, the composer got together and they designed a very elaborate dance for the great goblin, a wild dance. And so I had to do something which the actor could dance in. Um, one of the, the, the tricks we did, which worked terribly well, actually, was at one point, Gandalf walks in, and he's invisible, and he threw a, a knife which sliced off the great goblin's head. Uh, this fabric is actually UV fabric. That means that under an ultraviolet light, it glows. And the mask and everything was painted in, in UV paint. So now, under UV light, under ultraviolet light, you, if somebody's wearing something dark, you can't see them at all. Um, so the way we did the, the hair coming off, Gandalf came out the back and drew his knife. We then went very dark down to just UV light. And one of the stage crew had a duplicate knife which was painted in UV paint and was arranged on a stick so it would spin like that. He then walked right across the stage to behind the great goblin 
and another member of the stage crew standing behind the great goblin and wearing black just picked up his mask and dropped it on the floor. <laughs> and and he, he had a black stocking over his head or something underneath it. It worked an absolute treat. He was so sensitive. <laughs> now these are trolls. The trolls we did in quite a special way. shut up in tiny boxes and things like that. 
and her voice was dubbed through a, through a mic that she wore. And the costume was built on a, um, a sort of cat suit. Um, and uh, Gollum came on, as I said before, in a little boat. I've got a little sketch of it here. So it was actually just a little, like a box on wheels, and, and the actor knelt in it and then pushed his, herself. One of the actors playing a, a, a different gender than their own, I'm never sure which gender is referring to as the character or the actor. Um, but, uh, uh, and, that, and then he got out and, and, and clambered up on, on, onto what appeared to be the bank for, for the, 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 the riddles, you know. But going back to the costume, the, his, um, these, the ribs and everything, were applied, they, they were made out of latex and applied to it. And the, the, the head done in the same way as the, the, the others, but a rather better mask. And very big eyes, which made it easy for them to see. This meant that when the actor is posing the riddles, <laughs> um, Gollum would just um, look rather threatening and then put one leg behind his head. Because <laughs> we've got a contortion show, which you can see. <laughs> this is Dine's Messenger. Um, it was at this stage that uh, we realized wait a minute, we need an awful lot of weaponry. <laughs> an awful lot of weaponry. And um, our property department was pretty busy. So we tracked down a firm which did specialist weapon weapons for. Um, those historical reenactments and things like that. And in fact, they were very good. Um, this picture is um, the, weapon, the whole bunch of weapons under construction, uh, made of uh, foam and, and latex, coated with latex, so that you, you really couldn't hurt anybody with that because it didn't want wounds on, on the way. But uh, they made swords, knives, axes, and all sorts. And it was during a visit, probably the, the, the visit, when um, I took that picture that they said, um, what are you doing about the dragon? <laughs> and we said, well, we haven't really decided yet. <laughs> we could do the dragon. <laughs> so that was a big help. Come back to that. This is Stein's messenger on stage. It's rather nice because it looks terribly like a costume. I've got very, very few production photographs, I'm afraid. I never used to keep them in those days, and now, of course, I rather regret it. But these are one or two which I took myself with a Polaroid camera, <laughs> seems old-fashioned now, um, at, uh, at a rehearsal. Um, what's the next one? Oh, yes, we've got some more costume designs coming up. Here's Elrond and the Elf King, and here's Bjorn. Bjorn had pony servants. I rather liked it. And I can't remember, I was trying to remember when I was coming to you, I can't remember if they're in the book or not. They are. They are, are it's mentioned. Oh dear, I thought it was my clever invention. <laughs> no. It the all those ponies that stand on two legs, you've got dogs that stand on two legs, and like sheep that carry the food back and forth. Oh right, well that was where... He has white ponies, but I don't know if they like serve. Right. Well, yeah. right. in this case, in, in our production, we have two ponies. What is happening? Technology is setting down again. Here we go. These are um, water elves and wood elves. We had 24 extras in the class. A lot of them were children. 
and um, uh, they each had a sort of dance, and I really couldn't spend an awful lot of money on the costumes. So, so there was about a dozen of each, you know. So there were very simple costumes. They wore the same basic costume underneath. And I thought this, this I found out by accident, was absolutely great. I found I could get completely transparent face masks from carnival shops, unpainted, undecorated. When you put them on somebody, they look very strange because it makes them all, everybody looks the same, you know. And so we were just like, for this one, I think we, we put some strands of this fabric from the top and just a gold streak down the front, and that was it. And then for the wood elves, they had a similar thing, but with some leafy things um, on the top. Here's Bard, who shoots a dragon, and the, the master of Lake Town. Now, these are my first sketches for Smile. And I was at this stage when we went to see the people. I think they were called Creative Magics. I noticed they've got an advertisement in the program. Um, they um, and they lived in in Devon. They'd taken over an old schoolhouse. It was in a little village. It was lovely, lovely, beautiful place. I mean, just just like those English country villages which you always imagine and never really exist. Um, but I went I, and I, I said, well, I haven't finished the drawing. They said, give us what you've got. So I went down with a bunch of sketches just like this. And they basically worked from that. Um, what we did was, the head is a difficult bit. Um, the mouth was articulated so he could open his mouth. Um, the eyes lit up. And when the mouth was open, we had a red light in there. We could also shoot um, smoke, because we had a smoke coming. It's not really smoke, but it, it, it's a special glycerin spray, which is totally harmless. Um, to make it fly around, um, it, had, it had two wings. It, uh, it didn't actually have legs, because um, when we first, first saw it, in that scene with, the, with all the rocks, Bilbo discovers it, and it's lying on its, on its treasure. And it's, it's, it's there for quite a long time, and it has the dialogue with, with Bilbo. Um, and eventually, of course, it gets up and flies. But um, we got a large section of the platform was removable. And that was where the smile was lying, because underneath him, we've got four operators. One did the head, one on each wing, and one did the body and the tail. And they got it on rods. They were dressed in black. And when it was flying, we downlit it from the top very, very strongly. And so the, the, the operators could then run around the stage with it quite fast and, and lift it up quite high because they had these long rods. And everything. So when Bard shoots it, um, it, it sort of did a long sort of, sort of fall. Um, this next picture shows the, the uh, the, the head under construction on a visit to the workshops where they were building it. And I think the next one is, yes, here he is um, taken at the dress rehearsal. Um, I've got one or two more production photographs. This is the Battle of the Five Arms. With a tiny little goblin who's sort of lost. 
an awful lot of stage smoke really helps at things like this. <laughs> What's quite dangerous, we're also getting people, you know, damaging people's bleeding feet or because they stubbed it against something or other. This is um, a production shot of them reading the runes. This is the map I was sending you about. You can see there's a very strong light there. There's Elrond's house at the back. Here's Gandalf and Elrond and Thorin, and here's Bilbo down here. And the light is shining through the map. You can just see the runes um, um, glowing there. That's really all the pictures I've got to show you, except I want to tell you about an extraordinary coincidence. The production was very successful, and several managements in Europe and in Britain were interested in mounting it and taking it out on tour. Although eventually it never happened for the simple reason that you had to tour 24 kids a year. Not 24 because you need two teams because they couldn't play every night. And if you look in the program there, you see there's actually two teams, a red and a blue team. And that means you've got 48 kids all the time. That is hell. <laughs> and they can't tour. You've got to recast them every day to go. So the tour became impractical. But in order to market it, we thought, well, the sensible thing to do is to get a, um, a video made. This was in the last week of the run. There was a little bit of a panic. And so in order to find somebody to make the video, we just went to Miguel said, well, it didn't happen now. We used telephone directories that were called the Yellow Pages, in which all the businesses and friends had it. So we looked up to find the nearest video firm to us um, in Farnham, and it was one called Black Swan Video. And they came and, saw it and they said, yes, we can do it. And they set up their cameras. They filmed it during two performances and then took it away and cut it. You see what I mean? So they got the best of the two performances and took different shots from other side and made quite a nice um, VCR tape of it. Um, I can't show it, of course, because it's, it's, it's VCR and also it's PAL. We have a different system in England from NTSC. But the, they were packing up their equipment and going away, and I'd been in the theatre that day and, and, and chatting to them. And the main guy who was operating the main camera, uh, I said, well, it's been really nice seeing you. We've been out for a drink together. And he said, no, I'd be liked to do it. I was particularly keen to do, to do this one. And I said, why? Uh, I mean, are you a Tolkien fan? And he said, you didn't look at my card, did you? I said, no. Now, this next picture is the, this is the cover of the video. This is the front, and this is the back of the cast and everything. Now, down here, down there, <laughs> I'll, I'll imagine. <laughs> Isn't that the most amazing person? I've never been able to work out what really. To learn Tolkien, but there can't be many Tolkien's around. I, I there must be quite a few, somebody, because he had several children, didn't he? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's my lot. If you want to, oh, I suppose if you want to ask me about anything, now's the time to do it. If you want to have a look at my designs, the programs there, and the costume design, there they are. Make yourself free.
have a few volunteers. <laughs> well, we never had the budgets. But yeah. you know, with a show like that, you put money into it, and you, you could not, after August, we were fully booked for the run. Mm -hmm. And we squeezed in one or two extra performances, like a Wednesday matinee or something like that. But it just packed the room for the, for the whole run. What was your budget for the I don't know. I was afraid somebody was going to ask that. <laughs> and um, it wouldn't mean anything to you anyway, because bear in mind that if I'm designing a show for the West End of London, um, we've got to engage carpenters, painters, wardrobe people, all these different organizations. We had our own workshops. We had our own scene painters, we had our own carpenters and wardrobe staff. We supplemented them for this. We had an um, extra props person come in, and we had um, an extra painters come in, a couple of extra painters, and certainly an awful lot of people sewing in the wardrobe and, and that sort of thing. So we had an awful lot of people on the payroll, which meant that we were generally just paying for the actual materials. You know. um, the theatre was very well run. Graham used to have this thing of um, every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, everything starts at 10 in the theatre, nobody's up by nine. <laughs> um, um, he would have a meeting of all the heads of departments, myself, the set of design, the wardrobe department, the workshops, front of house people and everything. And he would just be quite honest and say, how, we, how we're doing? We lost an awful lot of money on that show. Where can we make it up? Well, I can do, we can do costumes for the next show entirely from stock. Oh, that's great. So we could, don't have to put anything. And we would, and this is a great way to run a theatre. Rather than saying, there's no money, we've got to do cutbacks, you're not getting enough money. For, you know, he would say, where can we, where can we save? Where, or where, where do we need to splurge? You know? And one of the things that has always happened when I said design for theatres, it's always struck me as odd. Whenever you're doing a Shakespeare play, you know, if the theatre suddenly decided to do Hamlet, they give it an enormous budget. You can do Hamlet with nothing. <laughs> really, you can. But I remember, uh, this is case in point, uh, the theatre, they were doing Hamlet. The following play was a recent West End comedy, a silly romantic play set in a room. But um, there were four soldiers in it. I mean, guards' officers. And that meant they had to come on in full guards' uniform. And because it, we, we'd done Hamlet, and this was just a pot boiler, there was no money in that. I said, there's not enough money to hire four guards' costumes. I could do Hamlet for peanuts, because if necessary, we could put them in jeans and T-shirts. You know. But I've got to have money for that sort of show. And those are the sort of discussions we used to have, which was, which was nice. By the way, the theatre's now closed. And... Um, there's been a big campaign to keep it open, but it's failed. Um, and they're actually, that rather beautiful theatre, I loved it, has been de demolished at this moment. And it's very sad. It was a beautiful theatre. And also, I'm sorry, this is nothing at all to do with Tolkien, but the sensible thing is to keep your theatre open all day. Theatres here, generally speaking, they're only open for the show. This theatre, we had a restaurant. They'd open in the morning for coffee. It was a great coffee bar, so people doing their shopping in the town would come in and have coffee and buns. And then there would be a lunch. Lots of people would come in for lunch. There was a bar open. There was a bookshop 
in, in, in the day, then you could buy souvenirs and everything with the bookshop or presents for friends. And the, all the, the walls around the, the lobby and everything, they had um, tracks hidden just in the ceiling. So you could hang pictures and there were little adjustable lights. So we always had local artists exhibiting pictures there and selling them. And we took 10% of any pictures that they sold. And then you could come and have, um, have dinner before the show if you wanted, or stay afterwards and have dinner or a drink in the bar. I remember on the first night, we had a great party at the bar. And I was sitting at the table with John, who was playing Bilbo. And uh, it was getting very late, and the public had gone home, and there were just one or two theatre people there. And I saw the, the barman sitting at a table talking to some other people over there. John was, was chatting with me and a couple of other actors. And he loved beer. He drank beer. Pint glasses of beer. They looked at him. You could hardly see him behind the glasses. And I thought, that's all. Where's he getting the beer from? Because it always seemed to be full. And he was drinking quite a lot. But because he drank a lot of beer, frequently he was getting up and saying, I'm just going to the washroom. And then on the way back, I turned around and looked. And I couldn't see him. But one of the beer handles behind the bar was going... Because <laughs> 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 he didn't go up above the bar, so it's just so he could sell. <laughs> he is being, uh, he's playing. Um, uh, I looked him up online the other day, wondering what had happened to him. And he's been playing in the um, Harry Potter movies. You, if you see them, there's um, a very unpleasant elf. Goblin, whatever, who's manager of Green God's Bank. Oh my God! He's got a very sharp voice and, and looking really, really ugly and unpleasant with a lot of, of latex makeup on. And that's John. So oh I hope God. he's making money from doing that. <laughs> what do people normally talk about at your meetings? I warned you that I wouldn't be very academic. Lectures or at our meeting, like now. meetings like now, um, really exactly what you did a talk on something that they know about, they found interesting, and then at the end we ask questions. <laughs> Have any of you been to um, where they filmed it in Australia? Because you can visit Hobbiton, can't you? You've been? I was at um, Hobbiton in New Zealand. With oh, it's New Zealand, that's right. New Zealand, Australia, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. In the last spring. <laughs> And was that everything you would wish it to be? It was amazing, actually. Just the care that they put into it, the fact that they still had many of the original people from the movies working on it. So they had some of the same gardeners, they had some of the same carpenters maintaining it, some of the same props people. Because I remember they started building Hobbiton like 18 months before they started with, so that the gardens could be established and all that. Yeah, and so that they could... Um, like trod, tread the paths that they needed to make so that the paths would look like they had been made naturally. Oh, nice. And they had, they had um, the crew washing their clothes in Hobbiton so that they would, there would be naturally trodden paths between the hobbit holes and the clothes lines. <laughs> so they had them washing their clothes there for a month before. <laughs> I just thought, this is slightly relevant to this, but on this laptop, I have a picture which will puzzle you at first. Um, I know, I you wouldn't happen to remember 
You had to put the straight bit I'm surprised you did the, the full-size dragon flying around. Well, that worked, that worked, and you've got to, you've got to have a dragon to really, you've well, got to Yes, but, uh, you know, not just, the, you know, a big kite flying <laughs> around. Um, the problem with designing a show like this is that I'm designing the script which was given to me. I'm not designing the novel. See what I mean? Yeah. So anything that's not in the script, well, the, the thing with the dwarves' costumes, that wasn't dis described in the script, but there I had to go back to the novel. But there was no eagle in the script, so I, that didn't come into it, in, into my field at all. This is the, um, this is the program from the show, and I was looking at it before you came in, and I see this, um, there's a whole chunk in the middle. 
puzzles and crosswords and articles about dragons or and all that. Um, these are, if, if any of you are interested, these are the complete set of technical drawings for the show. Um, here's, here's the big arch, for example. Here's the sofa thing. And everywhere, Margaret. Yes, I did. Well, I bought I bought several illustrated copies of, of oh, okay. the. Um, see what. Um, oh, that was my. Actually, that of course is in the book. <laughs> I, um, I took that straight out of the book. Um, <laughs> and of course, this was the stage I got my first color printer. Color printers, wow, I thought it was magic. <laughs> but look at the awful sort of blocky quality. <laughs> now I have a 3D printer. <laughs> oh, these are drawings for, the, um, for those two, um, for the two other um, arches. We did these, we actually, the carpenters covered the, the flats in black velvet. And then... The, just these little details were painted on in thick paint on the, so that it went out into blackness quite quite nicely. That would be so gorgeous. Um, you said there was dance number for the the goblin. Yes. No, it was just for um. It, it was just for the great goblin. The great goblin. Yeah. yeah, the great goblin. I think he got it in his contract. He used to have a, a solo number or something. Because <laughs> yeah. so that was the one. Nobody wanted it. We all hated it. And I get on with the play. <laughs> so, so no one else. So there was. Oh, here we are. Yes, yeah, so no one else had a music number. <laughs> Everything goes into this folder, even my contract. Here's the bill because those back cloths were painted by um, an outside workshop, and I see that the country scene he caused it was five hundred pounds. Cost of painting the mountain scene was five hundred pounds. Backing to the cave was four hundred pounds. I don't know why. Cost of painting insert for cave interior scene. I don't know what that was. Total cost um, one thousand three hundred sixty-five. Not bad, really, for the amount of work. And yeah, this is his, well, his budget. Who was it asked about the budget? <laughs> there you are. This is, this is breakdown. This is breakdown of these. Oh yeah, this is me reading. What, this is from the um, from from the from the north from the book.
This is a breakdown of all the things we've done years ago. That's a very close, but the action is continuous until it's placed on the Shire and you don't get But that's just the, the run, that's not the production. Well, I did get it transferred to. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're not going to do it, but it was hopeless because they just played it on a VCR and put a camera in front of it. And I looked at it again before I came when I was thinking about this tonight, but it really was. This was one of the this was a newspaper cutting where I found this. This gave me the idea for the, the treatment of the surface of the planet. They had their own charts and stuff. It's got keep everything. This, this is a, yes. Look, this is a stage management breakdown of where all the actors are at different at the same time. You know, look at every point. So that we can check that they've got time to do costume changes, for example. This was my first yes. scene break. Yeah. Look, very excited with my new computer printer. <laughs> <laughs> And these with the original drawings, because these, because the, you know, those I redrew um, digitally. These are the original ones. These are done by the dwarves. The dwarves are always copies. Yeah, and they're, they're dialing copies, so they're, they're you know, much less sophisticated. Well, the main one is the fake of September 1999. No, no, no. No, because this is yeah, supposed to be, it's the one that, oh, okay. um, so that's uh, really this was the section which is that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so though that's actually yeah. a different, well, that's maybe, maybe, maybe the original one. This is the front row, this is the end seat. So when they were down here, they were very close. And also, because we're working with Cartagena, and it was always flipped. So also a little bit of conversation on the way to somewhere. It's another one of the ways. Yes. 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 I tend to put paint detail. I do, I do, I, I do laugh at the like the regalness of the This is actually painted on but instead he was able to be cutting this to know what they're cutting around. This this is this looks like Dobo's Well, it was kind of faithful to Tolkien, you know. If you would have been quite uh, pleased yeah, if this one it. thing would have been, why Celtic designs? <laughs> this isn't meant to be Celtic. <laughs> well, yes, but I noticed that in the program they've used some as well. It seems yeah. to fit. 
It's partly because I've just done a show in Scotland where I do a lot of Celtic <laughs> patterns and I got all the reference material. Well, it also looks gorgeous. <laughs> and also, so for that proscenium, I wanted that to be not just flat painted, but they, they carved the, all that Celtic pattern out of oh. styrofoam so that it actually went under, under and over, you know. It goes, it does go really well with the design of the show. It seemed right, yes. Something has happened to my cable. I had a uh, yeah. I the one I put on top oh, of the bag with all the other cables, so you wouldn't forget it. Oh, yeah. I was trying to make sure that you would see it. <laughs> no, I remember it when I plugged it in. I may say the following year, I said to Graham Elliott, what are we doing for Christmas this year? Are we doing, you know, the, the, the whole of the, uh, the rest of the Lord? <laughs> and he said, no, 
We're doing worship dance. Oh. Do you know worship yeah. dance? Yeah. Yes. You know what rabbits. Like? Yeah. Rabbits. <laughs> rabbits. A cast of 13 rabbits in one scene. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> How did you get the legs of the spider to move? Or like the back legs? Though. This is the actor's own legs. Okay. You so can see they're thicker than the others. And he had, they had tights with these extensions on. So that's the actor's own legs. So he had this fastened on the front. Yeah, so there's nothing back so there. There's nothing back there. There's nothing back there. The actor's just fastened on the front. They have like legs on the main. And then these. Oh, no, it's on the that's just where the stinger is if they have one. Those, these are the actor's arms. That's his hands. And he's holding that decorated stick. Now, all the other legs are all fakes. But in between, they're strung together with nylon thread. So that when the actor does that, all the other legs go up as well. So when they're threatening Bilbo, for example, they just did that. And they had a nice technique of wiggling that. And then, yeah, they had a sting on the end. There, okay. I guess. Oh. Some of the work with one. Shelob in Lord of the Rings definitely has a stinger. The bait is a one big spider. Yeah, that's right. Also, the spiders of this world were more funny than threatening. Yeah. Well, there's also there's Bilbo is also hopping around singing a song, laughing at them. That's right. The was a cop, a cop, old Tom Toddy, old Tom That's right. That's right. There was that. There was that song. There was quite a there's quite a number of different chipper songs. Well, we had we had a small band, so there was a music special composed for it. But they were tucked away, and we, you, didn't, you didn't see the band because we, we didn't have an orchestra pit because I covered it up. To be honest, when you had first mentioned the, the pack, the first thing I was thinking you were going to see what you had done is pack like pop up layers of the bag, so you'd have to mount them in the bag and you just kept removing stuff no, as you kept no, going. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, thing, the thing about fantasy in the theatre, and I've designed. Peter Pan as well, which was written as a play, and you've got to take it seriously. Then it works. And this, oh, we, we treated it like Shakespeare, you know. And no, it did Peter Pan, that was really, really serious. Because if you don't, if you just send the whole thing up, it, it becomes ridiculous. You know. But there were times in this when it was really frightening, and the kids were sort of huddling up to mum. Which is the way it should be. Was it, was it mostly like, Children and younger families coming for your families. 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 Yes. We have this great thing of it always amazes me here. The Citadel closes for Christmas. Now if they drink into a close at Christmas, that's when you make all your money. Because the whole family comes to the pantomime particularly, you know, you bring the kids with you and all that sort of thing. And it's a great family item to go to the theatre at, at, at Christmas. And all the Christmas shows traditionally well, they, they don't now, but they used to, when I started, they used to open on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. When I started there, I never got home for Christmas. We were always dress rehearsing on Christmas Day, because oh. we were opening a Boxing Day the next day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because here I don't run, like, November. 
Paul will have an easy time of it now. This theatre we did throughout the year, we did a different show every three weeks. Um, you could, um, if a play, then the theatre was, in, in the theatre we call it dark, no show. They were dark for a week. Um, that meant that if the show was very successful, you could hold it over for another week, then it would run for a month. All of us who were on the payroll there used to pray that the shows wouldn't be successful because if the, if the theatre was held over, if the show was held over, yeah, it meant time. we had a week less to prepare the next show. <laughs> but when, um, when I started my very, very first job, um, I basically ran away from home and joined the circus. My parents didn't want me to have anything to do with the theatre. And I said, okay, I'll be a school teacher like my auntie Dora, but I want to be an art teacher, which means I've got to go to art school. Oh, where would I go? I said, there's a very good art school in Canterbury. And I got a place, and I knew there was a theatre in Canterbury, a repertory theatre. And so um, I checked in at the, 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 the college, and on my way back to the place I was staying, I passed the theatre and I thought, there's something called a stage door somewhere. So I walked round the back and yeah, there was a door, a stage door on it. And I knocked and I said, I'm a student, is there anything I can do to help? And the guy said, oh, really? Good. Oh, wait a moment, we've just opened a show. The paint shop is full of dirty paint buckets, you clean those. <laughs> my God, they shan't, you know. And I almost flunked my course because I was around there all the time painting scenery. <laughs> and then when I graduated, that was where I got my first job and I eventually became head of design there. But there we did a different show every week. Ooh, which meant you got no time off. Well, Saturday night, after the show came down, as soon as the last person had left the auditorium, we took the curtain up again because we used the front curtain. All the scenery on stage came off into the auditorium. Scenery came in from the workshops onto the stage. And then it was all put up, and the, uh, the designer and the assistant designer would stay on and do some last bit of touching up. Then we'd come in early on Sunday morning to do things like hanging pictures or set dressings, and then we'd do um, light the show on Sunday afternoon, and we'd dress rehearse on Monday morning, open on Monday night, and first rehearsal for the next play on Tuesday morning. I never got a day off. For, for, I was there for three years. <laughs> got a, a lot of practice I, I in there. I learned an awful lot. When you do 150 yes, plus in shows. My, <laughs> well, the Christmas show always ran for two weeks. The bless. So I actually <laughs> did 100 shows in a year. Wow. For, for, for three years. No, I've got to get my stuff together. I'm really not. So I'm probably going to go around wearing t-shirts and be a